Welcome to episode 76 of My Circus, My Monkeys. Do you have any supervisor problems? Are your employees living up to your expectations? Are there people on your team who complain, have a bad attitude, or keep pushing back about what they're supposed to do? Is there one particular problem employee that seems to take up most of your time? If you're dealing with any of these issues, you're going to want to listen to this episode. So stay tuned. You're listening to My Circus, My Monkeys, the podcast for supervisors in education or any field that emphasizes growth and development. If you want to reign in the chaos and transform your team to better serve your students and clients, keep listening. This podcast explores essential information on supervision, employee engagement, and using a strengths-based framework to empower you and your team. We'll examine the latest research in psychology, neuroscience, education, and beyond to help you and your team get to the next level with your host, Ann Brackett, the Chief Engagement Officer of Strengths University. I want to start this episode out with a true story. Imagine you're a faculty member, or if you are a faculty member, then imagine you're you. You have a large class, and part of the curriculum is becoming proficient at using five different similar gadgets. It would take too long to test everyone on all five, so you set up a schedule and bring them in one by one and randomly test each student on two of the gadgets. The students have all five gadgets to study with and are supposed to bring theirs for the test. Students would have to know how to use all five to really be prepared, so theoretically you can assume that if they know the two you're selecting, they probably know the other three. It's going to be a long day, but it'll get the job done. Things seem to be going well enough, Some students nail it, some struggle, but that's typical. Then early in the afternoon, a student comes in for their test. They pull out two of the gadgets and wait for you to tell them to start. You ask them to show you how to use the gadgets, and they do flawlessly. But you're confused. After they're done, you ask, how did you know these were the two gadgets I was going to test you on? They calmly reply, a few of my friends went earlier today and they all said that you only tested them on these two. You look at them in disbelief. You had been testing on just two of the devices to be consistent, just in case some of the devices were more difficult than others. But you're shocked that students would share this information with each other about a test. You feel the adrenaline start surging through your body. Your heart rate increases. You feel the blood race to your face and your chest. You're trying to stay calm, but you're angry. You tell the student, You're going to report them for cheating and to man to know who told them the answers. They refuse to tell you, which makes you even angrier. You change up the gadgets that you test on the rest of the afternoon, but you can't shake the feeling of anger and disappointment for that student and all the others who might have cheated. Each time a new student comes in that looks at all surprised about which gadget you have them demonstrate, you assume that they must have cheated too. After you get back to your office, You report the issue to your dean and demand there be a full investigation. You contact IT and ask if they can look through your students' emails to see who might have shared information about that test. You email your entire class and let them know how angry and disappointed you are with them and that there will be a thorough investigation to identify all the cheaters. You even start looking on social media to see if you can get screenshots of anyone who may have posted about it during the testing day. Okay, 
So after listening to the story, how do you feel? Did it bring up similar experiences for you? Are you angry for this faculty member? Did that shock and disappointment remind you of any supervisor situations you've had to deal with? So I first heard this story from the student in question. They were one of my student workers. I worked at a college that focused on healthcare, so the curriculum was intense. Most students went from getting A's and B's in high school to C's. Yes, cheating was a problem, but this particular student had zero reason to cheat. They were one of the few gifted people that really didn't have to study very hard to get straight A's, even with the strict curriculum. When they told me what happened, they were both nervous and angry. When the faculty and member accused them of cheating, they offered to test on the other three devices to show that they knew them all. But by then, the faculty member had already made up their mind and refused the offer. I later heard more bits and pieces of the story from the dean, other faculty members, and other students, some who were in the class and others who were just outraged on behalf of their fellow classmates. Everyone was upset. Everyone blamed the other side. Now, this may not seem like it relates to supervising, but it absolutely does. As supervisors, we typically spend our days in back-to-back meetings, followed by trying to get the work done that was assigned in those meetings. That means we don't have much time to check in with our team. We just feel like we know how things should be going, and if we suddenly realize they aren't, we react strongly. And note, I didn't say respond, I said react. Reactions are impulsive. Our feelings direct our thoughts automatically because of the stories and assumptions we have about the situation. This usually ends up being a reaction that involves placing blame on the individual or individuals that seem to be the problem. In other words, why is Bill doing that? He should know better. I don't have time for this. Expletive. And you know what? Sometimes it is Bill. There are some employees who, for a variety of reasons, are not showing up to do their best work. But our initial reaction isn't always right. Sometimes the problem is the system. Sometimes the problem is you. And often it's a mix of all three. So let's unpack our cheating story a little bit more, and I'll show you how this applies to supervisors. Everyone was casting dispersions, but few were looking at it holistically and asking what actually caused the problem and if there was really a problem at all. Now, just to add some context, my dissertation was going to be on academic dishonesty. Having input, I put a great deal of time researching the issue before quitting the program to put my energy into Strengths University. But in a nutshell, I know quite a bit about cheating. First, let's look at the student's role. Did they discuss what was on the test with other students who hadn't taken the test yet? Yes, absolutely. Is this sharing appropriate? I would argue it depends. In most testing situations, all the students take this test at the same time, so it's not really relevant. In this specific situation, no one was told they couldn't. Students were doing what they normally do after tests letting off steam by discussing how it went. It's just in this case, there were lots of students who hadn't been tested yet. Given they were supposed to be tested on any two of the five devices, knowing what Beth was tested on at 9 a.m. shouldn't really have mattered to Betsy at 3 p.m. Quite frankly, if my student worker had taken out all five devices, the instructor wouldn't have thought anything about it. They truly didn't think it was cheating, so they absentmindedly only took out the two they knew were being tested. Second, let's look at the faculty members. They told students 
that they would be tested over two of the five. But for whatever reason, and I just gave a plausible reason earlier, I don't really know what the reasoning was on that occasion, the faculty member decided to only test on two. One of the common deterrents to cheating is that faculty mix up the questions and answers on their tests. And I'll get to why that's important in a minute. But they chose not to do that. They also didn't communicate clearly to the students that they were not allowed to discuss what was on the test until all the students had taken it. The faculty members immediately blamed the student without questioning their own behaviors. They turned an unfortunate situation into an incredibly tense one by their reaction. Everyone was defensive and everyone blamed the other side. Even more importantly, it damaged the trust between students and faculty for years after the incident. Now, let's look at how the systems in place contributed to this situation. As I mentioned, it was an intense curriculum, so cheating was an issue. To add to that problem, there wasn't a centralized system at that point to deal with academic dishonesty. That meant individual faculty members were supposed to deal with things themselves. But some instructors ignored it, and this allowed cheating to flourish. That is in part why faculty were so triggered by what appeared to be cheating by a trusted student in cahoots with perhaps the entire class. So if we zoom out even a little further, cheating has been a systemic problem in education for centuries. It was often blamed on individuals who just didn't have a proper moral compass. Most of the initial research on cheating was focused on identifying what types of students cheated. But more and more, the research is looking at sociological and systematic issues. There are many nuances to cheating, so I don't really want to oversimplify it, but also this isn't a podcast about cheating, so I'm going to try and summarize it briefly. When we look at intent, yes, there are some students who are just trying to take the easy way out, but most students don't cheat because of a moral deficiency. They cheat because of external pressures. Maybe they have to work to be able to afford school. Maybe there's parental pressures to succeed. Maybe they have to take care of their siblings for their parents, and all of that can interfere with their ability to study. Maybe they have a scholarship they need to keep. Most students are just trying to do the best they can, but if they've tried their hardest and just need to get past one hurdle, if an opportunity arises to cheat, there's a decent chance they'll take it. That's why faculty need to do things like mix up their questions and answers. I mean, if you need to get an A on your final to keep your scholarship, one that you needed to stay in school, what would you do? That student, or even you, could easily think, overall, I'm an honest student. This is just one time, and I need to pass to be able to continue to be a good student. There are other cases where students cheat simply because they didn't know that they were cheating. This is directly related to setting clear expectations. And this could be for a variety of reasons, like the culture, how academic dishonesty was defined, and how well that information was communicated to students. In fact, one of the challenges of the research is that everyone has a slightly different definition about what constitutes cheating. That means when you look at the research, two different studies may not actually be talking about the same thing. I could go on, but I want to bring this all back to us as supervisors. In this situation, it was easy for the faculty member to assume the problem was with the students. That's what their gut told them, and that's how they reacted. But if you really look at what happened, the students might have been careless, 
But they didn't intentionally cheat, at least not this specific student, and I'd argue most of them. It's easy for us to jump to the same conclusion when our employees don't live up to our expectations. We think, why aren't they doing what they should be doing? Why do they keep questioning the process? Why can't they be more like, insert the name of your favorite employee here? Our assumption is the problem is with them, and we're annoyed that we have to stop doing what we're doing to address it. We have a visceral response and focus our energy and our frustration on fixing that employee. We'd run around asking other people, what should we do about Bill? But we rarely stop and think, what were all the factors that contributed to this problem? Instead, because we're stressed and frustrated, we just ask, why are they falling short? Just because something doesn't go as expected, it doesn't mean the problem is with the folks who are doing it. In reality, the problem often lies with us as supervisors. I've talked about setting clear expectations in earlier episodes, so I don't want to go into a great deal here. But in another nutshell, we too often assume that people know what we want and what they should be doing. To make things even more complicated, we often don't even know ourselves what we want to begin with. But when we see them performing in a way that displeases us, we're suddenly disappointed and even angry. If you're not clear from the beginning about what you want and they do the best to deliver their best guess, who's really to blame there? I've wrestled with this myself on several occasions. I had my reaction, typically anger and disappointment. I run over and over again in my head all the particular ways this person or team failed, which just keeps the anger brewing. Many times I express that anger in less than ideal ways. I'm quite sure in those situations, I damage the trust between myself, that person, or the team. You may have experienced this yourself with a supervisor of your own. They gave you vague instructions or guidance along the way. Maybe you assumed you knew what they wanted, or you just didn't feel comfortable asking them for any clarification. You proudly had the event or turned in the report, whatever it was, and then were shocked when they told you that you'd fallen short. This happens more often than you'd think. As Brene Brown says, clear is kind. First, you need to be clear with yourself on what needs to happen. Then you need to be clear with your team. Eventually, when these situations would come up, I'd start to ask, how did I contribute to this happening? Sometimes it was simply the fault of the team member. But more often than not, I ended up having to pivot because I was unclear about things to begin with or I hadn't held people responsible in the past for similar behavior. To react is human, especially a stressed human. But to be an effective supervisor, we have to allow ourselves the reaction and look at the big picture to create an appropriate response. And just like with our story, we also need to consider how our systems might be preventing our team from being successful. And this could be anything from how we communicate with them to the culture of higher education itself. Even if you had a system in place for a specific reason and it worked well, if circumstances have changed, it may no longer be an effective system. How many things were going smoothly before COVID? And I'm not being funny, some were. Did you just try to keep them going with a few tweaks to adapt to being virtual? Or did you actually discuss whether or not that approach was still going to be effective at all? 
Sometimes we have a staff-to-student ratio that allows us to do X, Y, and Z fairly easily. We may even do so well we decide to add A, B, and C to the mix. But when that ratio changes, which typically means fewer staff members, the answer is rarely, well, we just need to work harder to make the same thing happen. The answer is you need to pivot. You need to decide what are the most important things so it's once again a reasonable workload, even if that means getting rid of A, B, C, X, and Y, even if it means rethinking the entire system. After all, if you are creating the system from scratch today, it would turn out different than how it did back then. Even supervisors not being clear about expectations is often a result of systemic problems. Supervisors don't get the training they need to be successful, so they don't know how to effectively manage their team's performance. Not to mention the unrealistic amount of work supervisors are being asked to do on a daily basis. That's all a result of ineffective systems. I mentioned earlier that supervisors don't feel like they have the time to check in regularly with their team. And honestly, if they do, it's not always in a meaningful way. If the systems create an environment where supervisors both lack the skills and the time to adequately supervise, that is a huge problem. Now, there are many policies, procedures, and cultural factors that are causing systemic problems, but I want to specifically address retention. Retention embodies several larger systems, but because it's such a trigger, it's way too easy to blame retention issues on individual performance. If you're concerned that your team isn't living up to expectations here, I really want you to take some time to reflect on how your expectations about retention impact your team. People argue we have to keep pushing because we can't let retention drop. Even if you are not responsible directly for retention, you're constantly being asked to do more with less to keep students enrolled. But does this actually make sense, especially if it means setting up our employees and maybe ourselves for failure? If the systems you have in place for student retention burn out the very professionals you need to support your students, how can you then hold them accountable when they can no longer reach them? With the population shifts that have impacted enrollment and COVID, things now are simply different. Trying to apply the same formula you used for retention before may not make sense. Are the things impacting retention even the same now as they were pre-COVID? Do students need the same things? Or are you assuming and doubling down on what you used to do to the detriment of your team? Maybe what was considered a good retention percentage pre-COVID needs to be changed given this new reality, especially if that old standard is now practically unattainable. If so, then looking at how well your team members are measuring up to those outdated standards is blaming individuals for a systemic problem. To sum all of this up, Yes, there are some employees who may be the main problem in certain situations. If you've thought about the other aspects and that's the case, check out our episodes on performance management, setting expectations, and even employee engagement. However, it's rarely just some individual flaw or lack of morals that's at play. If you want to maximize your team and start responding to problems instead of reacting, you need to be able to step back and reflect on your own behavior and the systems that impact your team. Part of this process involves getting more training for yourself so you know how to do things like better set expectations, build trust, coach your team, and hold people responsible. Part of it also means assessing the systems that impact your students or your department 
to ensure your team members have the best chance possible of success. Realistically, you can't change everything, especially the larger systemic problems that might be happening on your campus or in higher ed. But that doesn't mean you have no power. You can change things in your department that you have direct control over. You can change some of the systems that you've been using that just don't work anymore. You can pivot and adapt to make an environment where employees and students can be successful. Even more importantly, you have the power to change you. In fact, changing yourself is often where you can make the biggest impact for your team and yourself. So until next time, stay strong. Thanks for listening to My Circus, My Monkey. You can find this episode's transcript and links as well as other episodes on our website www.strengthsuniversity.org slash mycircus If you found this podcast valuable, please share it with your friends and colleagues so we can empower and support supervisors everywhere. Finally, be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. As always, Alicia and I are here to support you as you reflect on where you are and where you want to go. One great way to invest in yourself and your team is to join us for the summer cohort of the Supervisor Strengths Institute. We are revamping the Institute this summer to make it even more manageable for your busy schedule. It is the same great content, but we've condensed it so you can work through each week's modules and start implementing change even faster. We know that life can too easily get in the way of you staying on track, so we've also added a bonus for everyone who completes all eight weeks of learning. You will get an additional 60 minutes of our time, and you can use that for more individual coaching, a short team session, or to receive a discount on a longer team workshop. Our Summer Institute starts on May 28th. Go ahead and register now check it off your list. We want you, your team, and your students to shine their brightest. And that starts with you. So join us for the Summer Institute using the link in the show notes. Or if you have questions about the Institute or other services, contact us at Anne, and that's A-N-N-E, at strengthsuniversity.org. Thanks for listening to My Circus, My Monkey. You can find this episode's transcript and links as well as other episodes on our website, www.strengthsuniversity.org slash mycircus. If you found this podcast valuable, please share it with your friends and colleagues so we can empower and support supervisors everywhere. Finally, be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode.